0: fit toys
1: welcome to episode 602 uh, best of episode with my guest dr ellen sachs uh, she wrote the book the center cannot hold this uh episode was originally aired in 2015 and it's uh, one of my favorite episodes and she really delves into uh her battles with schizophrenia and it dispels a lot of myths and uh if you've never read her book it's a it's a really great book Uh, We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, This month, the theme at BetterHelp is talking about uh, healthy brains. And I was uh, talking with my therapist, Heidi, last week, and she reminded me that there's a journal portion of the uh, BetterHelp website, and you can choose whether or not you want to share what you journal with your therapist or not. And uh, um, I do share mine with her. And... Uh, I wrote just for today, I'm not going to give in to fear of failure or being rejected, that I'm going to take artistic risks, that I'm going to choose to act like the man I want to be and accept my mistakes and take responsibility while still accepting that I am human. I'm going to choose to accept whatever the future holds, and I'm going to choose to see what is good in the world and in myself. And those Things help me keep a healthy brain and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy having a therapist is that they, they kind of help me you know when I start to drift off onto their shoulder they help nudge me kind of back into it and I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat only therapy sessions so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's betterhelp.com slash mental, and make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And without any further ado, here is that episode from 2015 with Dr. Ellen Sachs. Welcome to Episode 242 with my guest, Ellen Sachs. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle that you can uh, follow me at. Please go check out our website. You can um, browse the forum. You can read blogs and guest blogs. You can support the show financially. You can fill out surveys that we read on the show. Um, that helps us get to know you, and it uh, just might help somebody. Who's reading uh, the surveys to uh, realize that uh, their story's similar to yours, and that they're not alone? And you might also read somebody's story and realize that you are not alone, because you know that's our that's our goal here at uh, doing the podcast is to to remind you that you're uh, you're not alone. A um, couple of surveys here. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Fish and. Uh, The way she describes her depression, she writes, like being forced to be at a party and no one will let you leave even though they see how miserable you are. (laughs) That is such a good one. That is such a good one. This is from a woman who calls herself a Yankee fan, 17, and about her anxiety. She writes, it feels simultaneously like a heart attack and like there is a giant gaping hole in my chest where my heart should be. And then uh, this is a snapshot from Monica, whose issues are depression, ADD, anxiety, alcoholism, anorexia, uh, trichotillomania, um, and uh, it looks like codependency and anger issues. Uh, She writes, I recently wish there was an all-inclusive vacation destination getaway, like a yoga retreat, except for mental health. Then I realized I was fantasizing about rehab and how good that would feel. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. You're shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom.
0: I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy. Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. And I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I have to warn you, I really have a very problematic memory. So sometimes I want to forget your question or what my answer is That's about fine. I have I to a to really repeat.
1: bad memory as well. So okay. we're uh, two peas in a pod. Okay. <laughs> I'm here with Ellen Sachs, and I am so excited that she has uh, come to be a guest on the show. She has written a book called The Center Cannot Hold uh, about her battles, uh, among other things, with uh, schizophrenia, Um, and it is a profound, uh, profound book, Um, so articulate, such a – I love when somebody writes something where you feel like you are taken to a world that you've never been to and you achieve that in in that Thank book you. even though I relate to the feelings right that you have in battling your right. illness uh, I think schizophrenia is such a uh, there's so many myths around it and you there dispel really
0: so many of those yeah. so I'm so glad that you are are here I'm really delighted to be here I'm glad mm-hmm. that you have this this program Helps a lot of people like us and our family members to, to do better and be happier.
1: In 45 minutes, you'll feel differently. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a chance to ruin that image, Alan. <laughs> Just hang with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I don't even know where to begin to, uh, let these people know, uh, all of the things that you've achieved, you uh, have a – is it a Ph.D. in philosophy from Oxford? Or no, an Mlet an a Master a- of Letters. A Master of Letters from Oxford. You're a graduate of the Yale uh, School of Law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a professor at UFC, USC of Law, Psychiatry, and Psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you went and got your uh, – Ph.D. in psychoanalytic, in science. psychoanalytic <laughs>
0: science. And I just want to say on the behalf of the rest of us, you're making us look bad. <laughs> I'm just someone who likes being a student, you know, so it serves me well, and it's fun, and it's interesting. And yeah, it really... I, I, don't, I can't think of another degree that I'm going to do. You know, maybe I'll become a musician or something. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> One of the things in your book is you would... Your sanctuary yeah. became books and the library, yeah. and that was like your womb... Yeah. I, carrying around Aristotle would be like a blankie or a t- teddy bear or something like that. It sort of my transitional object, as we call it in the business. What was it about Aristotle that, that? Oh, I just thought he was so smart and so interesting. And do you still feel that way? I do. Okay. I do. Although I haven't read him, you know, in 20 years. But have I, you kept in touch with him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I go to a seance and bring, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, no. I just, I just. It's just so interesting and so important and so amazing that one person could have done everything that he did. And and how timeless yes. the things are. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that he was the first person that you felt like ha- had a peek into your soul? Uh, not really. No, not really. No. At that time, I w- was fairly stable and not thinking. So- well, I guess I did fall ill while I was studying Aristotle. Mm-hmm.
1: No, it's a very interesting question. But I don't mean necessarily your illness. I just m- mean the feelings
0: that all Yeah, all, no, all I think so. Have. I think so. I think I loved his Nicomachean Ethics and the Golden Mean, and I loved De Anima on the Soul and the Metaphysics. Mm-hmm. You know, some of this stuff is very dated and not valid anymore. Some of the science stuff, mm-hmm. categorizations and so on and so forth. But so much of what he said is just so meaningful and so on point y- today. Y- y- the observations about society and our place yeah. in it and
1: how we view ourselves and our principles and exactly. our priorities. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, where would be a good place to uh, to start with your story? You know what, I, where I'd like to start first, and I apologize. I didn't bring a copy of your book in because I wanted to have you I read. I actually have a
0: copy. You do? I brought one. Would you read
1: the um, prologue? Sure. If that's not too much to ask.
0: kind of long, but... Okay. Prologue. Actually, the book has been... There's an audio version of the book, which I haven't Mm -hmm. looked at, but people say it's it's kind of cool, so I should listen to that at some point. Who who, uh, read it? I don't know. (laughs) But people say she was good. (laughs) I hope so. Okay. Prologue. It's 10 o'clock on a Friday night. I'm sitting with my two classmates in the Yale Law School library. "'They aren't too happy about being here. "'It's a weekend, after all. "'There are plenty of other things that th- they could be doing. "'But I am determined that we hold our small group meeting. "'We have a memo assignment. "'We have to do it, have to finish it, have to produce it, have to. "'Wait a minute, no, wait. "'Memos are visitations, I announce. "'They make certain points. "'The point is on your head. "'Have you ever killed anyone?' My study partners looked at me as if they or I had been splashed in the face with ice water. "'This is a joke, right?' one asks asks one. "'What are you talking about, Ellen?' asked the other. "'Oh, the usual. Heaven and hell. Who's what? What's who?' "'Hey,' I say, leaping out of my chair. "'Let's go out on the roof.' I practically sprint to the nearest large window, climb through it, and step out onto the roof, followed a few moments later by my reluctant partners in crime. "'This is a real me,' I announce.' Uh, "'Waving up my hands above my head. "'Come to the Florida sunshine tree. "'Come to the Florida sunshine bush "'where they make lemons, where there are demons. "'Hey, what's the matter with you guys?' "'You're frightening me,' one blurts out. "'A few uncertain moments later. "'I'm going to go back inside,' said the other. "'They look scared. Have they seen a ghost or something? "'And hey, wait a minute. "'They're scrambling back through the window. "'Why are you going back in?' I asked. "'But they're already inside, and I'm alone. "'A few minutes later, somewhat reluctantly, "'I climb back through the window, too.' Once we're all seated around the table again, I carefully stack up textbooks into a small tower, then rearrange my note pages. Then I rearrange them again. I can see the problem, but I can't see the solution. This is very worrisome. I don't, know, quote, I don't know if you're having the same experience of words jumping around the pages as I am, I say. I think someone's infiltrated my copies of the cases. We've got a case to joint. I don't believe in joints, but they do hold your body together. So that's an example of loose associations. Yeah. I glance up from my papers to see my two colleagues staring at me. I, I have to go, says one. Me too, says the other. They seem nervous as they hurriedly pack up their stuff and leave, with a vague promise about catching up with me later and working on the memo then. I hide in the stacks until well after midnight, sitting on the floor muttering to myself. It grows quiet. The lights are being turned off. Frightened of being locked in, I finally scurry out, ducking through the sh- shadowy library so as not to be seen by any security people. It's dark outside. I don't like the way it feels to walk back to my dorm. And once there I can't sleep anyway. My head is too full of noise, too full of lemons, and law memos I cannot write and mass murders I won't know I will be responsible for. I cannot work, I cannot think. Going back to my room, I sit on my bed moaning in fear and isolation. Do you want me to No, you know, I think I, I think that's
1: yeah. that's good enough. Um I mean, that just grabbed me when I, when I read that. Yeah, I was,
0: I was like, uh, I was a so funny story. Rebel is his real name. He was a breech birth in Alabama. His mom named him Rebel. And when I did my book, I, um, I found out that he was an entertainment lawyer in LA. So I consulted him about representing me. And he said, what's your book about? And I said, it's about my mental illness. And he said, really? I said, yeah, you're in it. He said, I am. I said, yeah, I don't know if you remember the scene on the roof of the Yale Law School. He said, how could I forget? <laughs> so that was kind of a funny moment. <laughs> Uh talk about the first time
1: that you experienced uh, an erosion of reality. I
0: guess, you know, I had a, an episode, a self-limiting episode when I was a teenager, probably 16 or 17. I had read Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar, and it spoke to me as it does to many teenage girls. And one day in the middle of school, I simply stood up and started walking several miles home. And it seemed like the houses were communicating with me. They were sending me messages. They were, you know, I would walk along. They'd say, actually, they didn't, I didn't hear them as voices. I heard, I felt them as thoughts put it, being put into my head. Walk, Ellen. You are special. You are especially bad. Repent. Go home. You know, just really scared the living daylights out of me. You know, I got home and I actually told my parents and they, uh, drove me to the drug rehab I was in. Uh, And nothing was ever again said about the episode and i I guess if i have one regret about my childhood which on by and large was a very good and healthy and non-traumatic childhood it's that my parents didn't get even then that i had a serious issue that needed to be addressed but mental health was not on people's radar streams then the way it is now Yeah. yeah um and you grew up in a household uh where
1: achievement and intelligence uh, was believed could overcome anything. Absolutely.
0: Talk about, about the danger of that belief. Well, I remember when I was in the hospital, towards the end, I was talking to my dad on the phone saying, being kind of pessimistic about my future, and he's like, Ellen, people come back from terminal cancer. You can do this. This isn't such a big deal. And my original thought was, you just don't get how hard this is. But then my thought was, you know, maybe he's right. You know, maybe I shouldn't just, you know, shut down and sit in a day room and watching TV all day. Um, So that sort of encouraged me and in fact I'm doing a study with UCLA and USC on other high functioning people with schizophrenia and a lot of them say that their parents continue to have high expectations of them and encourage them to do what they would have done anyway and that that was meaningful to them and that helped them. I know there are a lot of parents who do that to kids and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So it's not not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. But for some people, it did make a difference. Do you think
1: that there is a, uh, a, you know, one of the prevailing uh, theories around mental illness Mm. is that genetics are the gun and
0: environment pulls the trigger. Do you believe in that? I do. I, you know I, I have it in not my immediate family but my extended family and stress is bad for all illnesses and particularly for mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. So the combination of uh, uh, vulnerability in your genes and uh, experiences you know working together can cause a problem. I, I really I had some self-limiting episodes you know, as I said as a teenager and a couple of times in college. What do you mean when you say self-limiting? that I was able to like bring them to a close okay. and go back to my normal, usual self. I see. Um So what was I saying? Self-limiting episodes. I forgot what, what were we were talking about. But you're talking to somebody whose memory is as bad, if okay. not worse, <laughs> than yours. And she she
1: warned me before we started rolling that she has a bad memory. I was like, well, that, <laughs> makes, that makes two of us. Yeah. Um,
0: I don't know. I lost it, too. I lost it, too.
1: (laughs) We would not do well on Survivor as as a team. (laughs)
0: Do
1: you ever watch Naked and Afraid? No. Oh, my God. It's so good. They drop people off in the wilderness uh, naked uh, for 21 days with nothing but one primitive tool. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I I I love watching it because I just love knowing at what point... I would be completely fucked, and it's usually <laughs> about four or five hours in. I'd be like, "Oh, I'd clearly be in the fetal position, crying exactly that somebody needs here. to bring me water." <laughs> um, but yeah, like every one of your faculties has to be firing and right. completely working, and right. mentally and and emotionally, you've got to right. be strong. And it's just right. it's it's amazing for me to watch that. But I digress. Is um, it on cable or regular? It's on uh, cable. I believe okay. it's on. Um,
0: we're probably the only household in West Los Angeles that doesn't have cable, <laughs> so I can't. That's probably good. <laughs> probably a good thing. Yeah. Uh, do you have Netflix? No. Oh. I go to movies out. a lot, though, at least once a week.
1: Netflix has some amazing documentaries. Does it really? Oh, yeah. amazing. I've probably yeah. seen 200 different documentaries. Wow.
0: That. They're my library. Documentaries wow. are my library. Wow. Yeah, That's it fantastic. feels like
1: a warm blanket when I fire That's up fantastic. a good, a good yeah. documentary. Um so the first time you uh, you felt it... Oh, I know what it was. Um, you were in outpatient uh, drug rehab, um, but let the listeners know that this was kind of... You're not a drug addict, yeah. and nor were you. It was kind yeah. of an overreaction by your parents. Yeah, I say point. even
0: about alcohol, I don't like the way it tastes. I don't like the calories, and I don't like the way it makes me feel. So it's kind of a no-brainer not to do right. it. So yeah, it was kind of a, an overreaction to that... It also had some negative side effects because drugs were, medication for the mind was kind of poo-poo, not not supposed to be a good thing, and that uh, incentivized me to try to get off of it more more than I could have. On the other hand, even though I don't think I was a real druggie, I mean, I may have smoked pot three times and done a couple of pills, um, even though uh, I don't think I was a druggie, I think... I I had adopted sort of the counterculture values, live for the moment, don't worry about success. And I'm glad I got that out of my system by the time I got to college because it meant I worked hard and I did well and doors opened and that wouldn't have happened if I was experimenting with alternative lifestyles when I was a freshman in college.
1: Uh, Do you think your view of drugs through that rehab that you were in and this
0: was a non-twelve-step rehab. This was no, a Synanon. It was ba- the the manager, the kind of counselors or managers or whatever, were from Synanon. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that that laid some of the some of the brickwork
1: uh, to keep that wall up around you that any kind of medication is bad, even if
0: it's you know, what about that? You're saying
1: you're. Your experience in the rehab,
0: yeah, it led you, me to think that I should do it on my own, yes it, yeah
1: yeah and and that might have been for you
0: years of wandering yeah, yeah this fight so. see i don't I don't think it's totally the 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 rehab that kept me trying to get off medication, I mean, I think people try to get off meds for basically three reasons. One, they don't like the side effects, but to me, if it's a choice between gaining ten or twenty pounds and being psychotic, I'm gonna gain weight or slobbering at night, I'm gonna gain weight or being sedated i'm gonna I'm gonna be sedated um, and the second thing is they feel better, they feel good, and they don't think they need it anymore. the way a lot of people stop uh antibiotics, even though you're supposed to finish the course mm-hmm. and then the third thing is what we call in the business the narcissistic injury of having a mental illness and needing treatment. So and that was the most important for me. It was sort of like my motto was the less medicine, the less effective. If I could get off the meds, I could prove once and for all that this diagnosis was all a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I actually finally got on really good meds and stayed on them continuously, it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that it wasn't as I had fantasized that other people have the same chaotic and violent and scary thoughts as I do. Um, mm-hmm. They have clear minds the way I now do on these drugs, and I, I, at that point. I admitted that I had the mental illness, and ironically, once I admitted I had it, the less it defined me. It sort of became accident rather than essence. So, I mean, it's sort of silly to quantify it, but if I if I may, when I was in Oxford, I would say like 80% of my conscious thoughts were psychotic. When I was at Yale and the first few years at, at uh, USC, I would say 30%. I'd say now three or 4%. So the meds and the therapy together have really done an amazing thing to help me Live a good life, and you have, to, you have to remember. I was actually given a quote, very poor and a quote grave prognosis, and I was expected to be unable to live independently, let alone to work. And, you know, that's not how my life turned out. Thank God. And you had many visions of yourself being a street person. I did. I did. And yeah. talk
1: about the time you looked in the mirror
0: and you saw. A street yeah, person. you know that. So it was my first hospitalization in in Oxford, and I just hadn't paid attention to myself or what I looked like. And one day, I just looked in the mirror and it was like someone hit me over the head with a hammer. I saw someone with you know, dirty and matted hair and stained clothing and eyes simultaneously vacant and full of terror and um, was a visage of a person on the back ward of a hospital for lunatics and it scared the death out of me. It scared me to death. Um, and I committed to doing as best I could to get out quickly and never come back. This would be my first, my last, my only hospitalization, and then, of course, eight months later, I was back, um, and I was hospitalized that time for four months, um, and then, then I did fine. I went back to my studies. I got a master's. I had made friends. You know, I think I had analysis with a clientian analyst five days a week, and I think that really interrupted what are called the malignant negative symptoms of schizophrenia, like apathy and withdrawal and inability to have friends, inability to function. I think the analysis sort of got me over that. So I had a really good life kind of psychosocially, but I still had a lot of crazy thoughts. And
1: your uh, analyst, uh, Mrs. Jones, right. uh, was a really seminal figure in your life, not just uh,
0: intellectually, but emotionally. Yeah, she was amazing. I mean, for one thing, you know, given the generation I am, she was one of the first women I knew who was... You know, very at- at- accomplished and intelligent, and and that kind. Of, I mean, my mom, my mom is bright, but she was a stay-at-home mom. And at college, I think I remember I had two women teachers. So, just having that kind of strong, smart, kind person, you know, helping me or connecting with me was really important. Um, Do you think she was part of the reason why you decided to pursue analysis
1: uh, on your own? Oh, for well? sure, yeah. for sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so many questions. Oh, the one thing I wanted to add, I think that there's a fourth thing uh, uh, okay. a, about the meds, okay. and I think it's a distrust of big pharma uh, because hmm. I know that that uh, interesting for me, interesting. That's one of the things. I just don't. I don't trust them, even okay. though meds have saved my life and in many ways given me a life.
0: And uh, do you agree, feel that way about uh, uh, meds for high blood pressure or or? Uh, diabetes or
1: I think it depends on the company and it and it depends on the, okay. the med I know they're necessary but i I kind of believe in many ways it's a deal with the devil uh some of them are deals with the devil and you don't know because right th- often they hide what the truth is
0: on yeah, I know there's certain things. there's certainly been some stories in the
1: last five years of yeah. As the uh, listeners know, I had a nightmarish experience with Abilify in oh, really? uh, the earlier part of the year where I almost really what to, happened? I almost had to be hospitalized. It was fantastic for a month. Might have even been hypomania. Uh-huh. And then it just uh, turned around a- into nothing but pure anxiety, oh suicidal thoughts and insomnia. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. it took about 2 months to to get it out of my system and to wow. uh recover, but uh, it As I began researching it, I began realizing all the things my doctor hadn't told me. Right. You know, that it could cause diabetes, it could do all of these other things. And I posted on Facebook, I'm having this terrible experience as anybody else, and people, Stories poured in of
0: people right? having to be hospitalized from Abilify. Now, I tried Abilify once. It just it didn't hurt me, but it didn't help me at all. Yeah. It was just uh, nothing. For me. And, and that's the
1: thing that I, that I tell people when they say, you know, I'm thinking about going on meds. I say every person is different, and their reaction to a med is different. And there's no hard and fast rules. It's trial and error. And uh, So are, you, you are on meds yourself now? Yes, I'm on three other ones. What that are you one, on? Uh, I'm on uh, Lamictal. Selexa uh, and Buspar. Cool. Yeah,
0: well, I was on Lamictal briefly because I had a, a dirty uh, uh, EEG. I had spiking in my temp- left temporal lobe, so it's a it's a it's a uh, a seizure drug as well as a mood stabilizer. Oh, is it. it? And my my doctor is talking about doctors telling you things. My doctor said, well, you know, they're, 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 the drug has certain risks, and uh, uh, you know, skin uh, rash, you could die from. Yeah, That's I said I, I said yeah. So you you get a skin rash, all your skin falls off, and you die. And he says, "Well, I wouldn't have put it exactly that way." <laughs> That's <just> exactly right. <laughs> and I guess that
1: speaks to the seriousness of mental illness is right. is that we're willing to to right. roll the dice, but you know also you know keep in mind the fact that this happens to people at a frequency which there's a better chance probably of being hit by a bus and killed than it is of being right. the person that dies from that skin rash. Right. Um. And I we say to people, you know, if if meds are off the table, also consider what are the side effects of not being on meds.
0: It's a great idea because those are. And what about therapy? Do your do the people you work with and you yourself value therapy? Oh, or? hugely. I, yeah. I always say that's the first place
1: to go. Yeah. For me, meds are the last house on the on the block. I agree with that. You know, yeah, um, therapy and support groups. Yeah, and diet, exercise, prayer, right. meditation. You know, right. those are all things that I. That I have to do to right. to just be normal, you know, or right. have a chance at uh, right. at normal. Uh, but getting back to uh, your story, um, when was the last time, if you're comfortable sharing sure. it, uh, when was the last time you had a uh, psychotic
0: thought, and could you share? Well. Uh, What I like to say is my husband says psychosis is not like an on and off switch, but like a dimmer. Mm -hmm. And At the far end, I'll have a transient thought like, I think I've killed hundreds of thousands with my thoughts and I'll recognize that it's my illness. Oh, Ellen, that's just your illness acting up. Mm -hmm. Pay it, no mind little farther uh, along the spectrum, say we have house guests, I love people, but I need time to myself as well, and that can tip me over, and I could go three or four days kind of in and out of psychotic states. Mm -hmm. And at the far end, I'm crouching in a corner, shaking, scared out of my wits, totally insane. That hasn't happened in 15 years. so yeah, no, I do, I do get symptoms, most of which I recognize at this point. You know, I feel grateful that I have that mm. that amount of insight. I always had social insight. I always knew that this particular thought or that particular thought would be would appear crazy to people, and I didn't want to appear crazy, so I didn't say it out loud, and I stayed at home if I couldn't not say it out loud. So having that kind of social judgment let me be able to function in a professional world, in a relational mm. world in a way that I wouldn't have been if I was just saying out loud all the things I said to my analyst.
1: Yeah, there was a, a, a turning point in your recovery, uh, as you share in the book, where you realized that uh, psychoanalysis was beginning to work against you. Um, yeah. That openness, which which felt like right. freedom at the beginning, right. had kind of become a bit of a prison. Talk about that. Well,
0: it became a bit of a prison in the hospital, right? Um, I mean, uh, my experience with my analysts was, say whatever's on your mind, no matter how upsetting, scary, angry, you know, um, anxiety producing or whatever that it is, or or even, you know, trivial, if you think it's Mm -hmm. trivial, say all that out loud, and we can try to understand how your mind's working and what you're thinking. Well, when I was in Yale New Haven Hospital, and I said stuff like that out loud, they restrained me. You know, so, and it's a dilemma that patients face. you know you either say what you're thinking and feeling, and there are consequences, or you don't and there are also consequences of not getting help so that that's kind of a a dilemma that a lot of us with psychiatric illness have um,
1: and I think that's why it's so important to find a therapist who's empathetic because for me, being heard and empathized with was monumentally pivotal in total in my recovery mm-hmm. talk about the arc of feeling heard and not shunned in your
0: recovery you know i felt my analysts heard me cared about me mrs jones mrs jones dr white dr kaplan dr. all the all the analysts i thought they were i thought they cared about me and and heard me and wanted to help me what was the question? Um, the arc of of, of feeling heard. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually, you know, I came to from a family that was not very psychologically minded. Um, you know, it was sort of like, well, if it's not nice to think or feel something, then you just don't do it. So there was no expression of anger, no expression of rage, no expression of fear. It's all very kind of on the surface. So actually to have someone who wants me to tell them exactly what I am thinking and feeling is really... Terrifying, important, probably, too. Well, it's terrifying, but it's also really empowering. Yeah. Um, Once you realize that they're not getting up to send you exactly the door. Well, and I have to say, I, I so am grateful to my analysts over these years who sat with a certain amount of anxiety when I wasn't doing well and refrained from hospitalizing me because, because, out of deference to my wishes not to be hospitalized. It would have been so easy for them to do that, and it and, was and, risky not to, and they did it.
1: And um, because some of the things that you said... Uh to Share some of those if you're if you're comfortable. Uh, some of the things you would say out loud. You know, I know verbatim. You may not re- remember them exactly,
0: but the gist of what- the gist. You know, just I'm a bad person, and I'm violent, and I'm dangerous, and I've killed people, and I kill children, and hmm. push people off roofs, and you know that kind of thing. Just, uh, I never uh, actually directly threatened anyone. I never said I'm going to do this to you. But occasionally, I would say things like, you know, I could do something like this. So, and you 've never harmed anybody i 've never harmed anybody
1: and that 's the other myth about mental illness is that mentally Ill, Ill people are more dangerous than the rest of the population Talk about it's it it 's
0: actually substance abusers are the most dangerous, and teenage males are the most dangerous um, i don 't know exactly the statistics, but my understanding is that four percent of violent crime is committed by people with mental health disorders, which is not a very high percentage. More representation in that group for the kind of really extreme events, like you know the uh, the school shootings and stuff like that, um, but most people with mental health disorders are much likelier to be victimized than to be victimizer and I think the stat is like twenty times likelier to be killed i 'm not positive about that, but it's it 's kind of stunning, whatever the number is is stunning um, and that 's one of the Big myths about mental health, especially schizophrenia, that are so damaging to people with the illness because it doesn't feel good to think that people are thinking, oh, my God, is this person going to hurt me? I actually, when my book came out, an administrator at the law school who I used to go to dinner with said, I'm glad I didn't know you had schizophrenia before we started going out to dinner. And I said, why? And she said, I never would have gone with you. So here's like a kind and smart and well meaning person who's saying that she literally wouldn't have dinner with me in a public restaurant because I had schizophrenia. What did that feel like when you heard felt it felt horrible? I felt glad that she felt free enough to say it frank and you know free enough to be frank, but it felt terrible you know the fact
1: that she said that to you though to me speaks to the fact that that you changed somebody's mind. the fact that she felt free enough to yeah, say that to you yeah. and that she was friends with you right um show that you you did some profound destigmatizing work. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um have you ever gotten in touch with any rage if there if there is rage in there about uh, not feeling heard as a kid and having to kind of stuff this inner life?
0: Uh, well, I'm very good at stuffing it, so I'm not aware of the rage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody's parents have limitations. And, you know, my, my mom was kind of dependent. My dad was kind of critical and stuff like that. But they were, they were basically, in Winnicott's words, good enough parents. Yeah. I definitely, you know, I have had a lot of bad health problems. Mental health, cancer, subarachnoid hemorrhage. What, and was, I the, what was the last one? Subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a okay. kind of stroke, a hemorrhagic okay. stroke, which like 50% people die of within a day or two. Actually, they didn't even work me up because they said I was having an episode, which is one of the oh, days where, where
1: you were bleeding from the spine? From
0: the brain. Yeah, yeah. from the brain. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, it was, you know, I was mentally ill, so I was just having an episode, and that happens all the time. Your life is a highlight reel. <laughs> it is a <laughs> one-hour
1: Sports Center highlight reel. <laughs> there is, uh, there is no, Has anybody ever approached you about uh, your life story being a movie? Yeah, that's in the works, but I can't really say very much about sure. it. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to buy a ticket. <laughs> okay. Then, um, talk about the myths around schizophrenia.
0: So I think. The major, the major myths are that people with schizophrenia are inordinately violent, that they can't live independently, um, that they can't work, that they can't have relationships or get married. It's sort of like a sentence to a bleak and painful life. You sit in a, a day room in a board in care and care and watch TV all day and smoke cigarettes. You know, it's kind of the, the myth. Or you're wildly violent and out of control. And both of those are myths. I mean, people say to me, I mean, we talked about the violence, but about being high-functioning, that I'm, I'm unusual, I'm unique. And it's just not true. I'm, I'm doing a study with UCLA and USC. Did I say this already, about the high-functioning people? Uh, you did, but you didn't uh, really elaborate on it. So basically, we've got two MDs, a JD, a PhD candidate, full-time teacher, full-time student, uh, CEO of a not-for-profit. So there are people who are doing well. It's just the stigma's so great that they don't come forward. Mm. And I have the luxury of having tenure, so it's not a risk for me to be open, even though it is a risk in terms of people diminishing me or looking down on me or whatever. Do you feel like you would have ever been tenured if your book had come out before? I think I would have, because I think I, you know my work was good and plentiful, and people have been very supportive. Um, they, no, nobody really. When I came, when I came up for tenure, I would say only a handful of people knew I actually had a mental health disorder. Most people didn't. What was it like,
1: the time between you wrote your book uh, and people that knew you hadn't read it yet? Was that <laughs> was
0: that nerve-wracking for you? Well, was a little kind of, you, when you're talking to someone, you think, I wonder if they've read my book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's a little bit nerve-wracking.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to read some, some questions that... Okay. Uh, from Listener m- listeners. Listeners. S- in. they're very excited that uh, I was getting you as a guest. Thank you. How can those with a mental illness stay employed uh, when they suddenly have a day of inability to
0: show up? Um, I mean, I think intermittently being unable to show up is not grounds for terminating someone. So it's not like... You can never take a mental health day off. Um, and in fact, uh, with the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, if you're identified as having a mental illness, um, your employer needs to, quote, reasonably accommodate what you need. And if that means once a month you stay home or if that means you have a two-hour lunch break so you can see your therapist at the same time as you have your, your lunch, then they're required, they're required to do that. Um, How important is that act? Oh, it's incredibly important. And it helps a lot of people. Um, Employment is important as well, I think, because I think, I mean, I noticed a couple of years ago that my worst times of the day were in the evening. And I realized that's because during the day, I'm focused, I'm writing, I'm constructing a counter argument, you know, the crazy stuff recedes to the sidelines. And when I'm at home at night, it just all comes flooding back. So people who don't have structured days, who don't have things to do, who don't have things to focus their mind on are it kind of stands to reason likelier to be in a bad place during the day. So employment is so important and I would encourage people to try to get, you know, work that interests them at the, that they like and to realize that there is some kind of leeway, you know, if you have difficulties. I mean heck, people don't go to work because they have a flare up of Crohn's or they have a terrible mm-hmm. migraine and nobody thinks, Oh, well we're gonna fire them.
1: Brain injuries are treated so much differently than exactly. than Injuries to the rest of the body. And which it, is so crazy because the brain is the most important organ. part of the bar is Woody Allen would say it's second most important organ, <laughs> which is creepy now in hindsight. Yes, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Still a great joke. Yeah. My brain, that's my second favorite organ. Um, so let's say somebody is having problems with an employer and they, they're they feeling uh, that they're being uh, judged differently than if they had a broken arm or a broken leg. Right. Uh, what should that person
0: do who should they contact you know i i'm not sure i'm the best one to answer that i mean as a lawyer i think lawyers can be helpful and there are organizations like in la mental health advocacy services and there's a disability rights organization that might be able to help or point you in the direction of of a lawyer who could help um but it's you know if you see this kind of happening, you know, you should consult someone because there are remedies. So maybe Google uh mental health advocacy in services. the name of your services in the name
1: of your city or town or something.
0: Well, it's just a, it's an LA organization. Okay, but I mean
1: uh just anywhere uh around the globe if somebody is uh, is experiencing that. Specifically the United States because we're talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? But,
0: um well yeah there are, there are different organizations that focus on you know rights and interests of patients and so the one in l a is called mental health advocacy services there's something it used to be called protection and advocacy or it's around the country and they look at things like abuse in hospitals and things like that. I can't remember the new name um then the kind of premier mental health law organization in the country is called the Bazelon Center for Mental health law in how Washington. do you spell that b is in boy a z e l o o n Bazelon. Bazelon. He okay. was a judge that did a lot of mental health cases. Okay. And they're in Washington, D.C., and they're in a phen- I'm on their board as well. They're a phenomenal organization and you know, probably would be able to help the person find someone who could help them, that, even if they didn't take the case themselves. Good. That's
1: what I'm, that's what I'm looking for is, right. is right. Uh, as you know, a lot of times, not knowing where to begin is enough exactly. to keep you stuck in the cement. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, does she find the, quote, danger to self or others standard for involuntary involuntary committal
0: too narrow? Uh, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think we should add a prong that says if you're incapable of understanding that you need hospital treatment and you need hospital treatment, that that would be a route to hospitalize someone as well. Um, I also have the view, I, one of my book before last, before the memoir was called Refusing Care, Forced Treatment on the Rights of the Mentally Ill. And I suggest that we have a system where the first time someone becomes acutely psychotic, we should be able to hospitalize them, even if they're not dangerous, just because they're seriously ill and need treatment and treat them for four or five months or whatever. Um, A lot of people say, well, when you're treated afterwards, you're, you're grateful. And my idea is, well, let's just, you know, let's just let's just try this out. So you've been hospitalized. Now you know what it feels like to have the illness and to be hospitalized going forward. Do you want to be hospitalized again under the same circumstances or only if it's an extreme necessity because of extreme danger? So I think there should be a way to have a a liberal standard, a more liberal standard than dangerous to self or others the first time. But after that, if the person doesn't want special treatment under that prong that that it should be the danger to self and others. And as I said, the incapacity prong. Uh, Talk about your experiences with hospitalizations. You've been hospitalized three times. Three times. times. Um, It's funny because I say I haven't been hospitalized since 82, 83 is my proudest accomplishment. And then I think, you know, I've had cancer too. I would never say, you know, 10 years, I haven't had a relapse in 10 years. I'm so proud. You would rather say I'm really lucky. I'm really happy. So it's kind of interesting. It? Yeah. It's I I don't know if we ever completely
1: um overcome shame and self-blame around mental illness. I agree. Um is that the ego? Is it,
0: it I guess, yeah. Uh I mean, just, it's not wanting to be lesser or damaged. Yeah. Or, yeah. And and uh, I think
1: that belief that you can accomplish anything if you put your mind to it right which is just not true <laughs> no. <laughs> look around my office is, <laughs> you should see my office yeah well i feel yeah. better yeah I, i've really got to start throwing some things away it is <laughs> it looks like a bomb went off in here um, talk about your first hospitalization
0: and what that was like emotionally uh so my first hospitalization was my first year at oxford um and i think it was in april or November, I don't... Yeah, anyway, I... So, was it like 1980? No, it was 1977, 78, oh, okay. or 78, 79. Right. I was extremely depressed. Um, I was very thin. I, and at 5'10", I weighed under 100 pounds, so I was very kind of anorexic. Um, you could have modeled. <laughs> <laughs> and You would have uh, had to lose a little weight. But. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh so depressed uh not eating um, a lot of fantasies of hurting and killing myself um, my preferred method would be dash myself with gasoline and light a fire um, and why I was such a terrible person i just didn't and, and and yet, I stopped speaking as well, mostly yeah. I mean, I spoke the minimum amount that I could,
1: and yet you had never done anything concrete that proved in that your that mind terrible. that you were a terrible person. It was just an inherent belief that you were. Right, right, right.
0: Um, so I had that belief. I, I believed I shouldn't talk because it would spread my evil around, and it's hard to make friends if you don't talk. So that was very socially isolated as well. So the first two years, a couple of things happened that weren't like the rest of the course. One is, um, I lost my train of thought.
1: Um. What led to your hospitalization in England? So um,
0: you believe you were evil. You would stop talking to people. I was very suicidal. Very suicidal. Right. Um, I started injuring injuring myself, um, and uh, went to see my GP. Burning yourself. Right. Went to see my GP, and he's like, "Well, let's get you to the to the psychiatric sector." So I remember actually I didn't have a phone. We we didn't have phones in our dorm room. So I was in the hallway making a phone call for the Warnford Hospital. And one of the scouts, the cleaning people, listened to me make the appointment, and I felt so ashamed. And then I uh, went out there, um, and they wanted me to go to the day hospital, and I said I don't need a hospital. I'm leaving, and I walked away and walked several miles home. But that night was just horrible. And the next day I said I'll you know I'll give it a try. So it started off again, severe depression, mild paranoid features. I thought people were looking at me and laughing at me, which could have been true, because I looked kind of a sight walking around the campus gesticulating and talking to myself. Um, and actually, there's, it's sort of uh, not that unusual in the literature to see that people who, who go on to develop schizophrenia start off looking like depression. Mm-hmm. So that's not that's not an uncommon course. And they often coexist at the same
1: time. Correct. Yeah. Right. Um, can untreated uh, schizophrenia exacerbate depression I would guess yeah I would guess uh,
0: so you get hospitalized and what is that experience like you know the first hospitalization um, I felt less scared and I felt taken care of I, it was not a terrible experience um, I l- loved my doctor I um, you know, uh, and uh decided I saw myself in the mirror, decided i 'm getting out of here as fast as I can, and used my best abilities to get out, never to come back uh, and then eight months later, I was back, and I was much sicker then as well um, and the meds
1: back then were pretty toxic, and
0: the, the only meds they were giving me were antidepressants because I was hiding my psychotic thoughts oh you hadn 't started taking tri Trilephon. trilophon, trilophon
1: yeah. No, I did not take antipsychotics till America. And you were not restrained in England. They don't restrain people there. They don't
0: do major, you know, four and six point
1: restraints. Haven't done that for 200 years. Um, They just invade your island and take it over. (laughs) (laughs) They restrain you culturally. (laughs) Uh. Um, So talk about then the difference the first time you were hospitalized in the States. The
0: hospitalization in the States was much more traumatic. Um, You were a a Yale law student? I was a Yale law student. I broke down the passage I read earlier on the roof of the Yale Law School. uh, uh, I went to see my professor the next day. He took me to the ER, um, and all hell broke loose. Um, I uh, had a telephone wire belt that I'd made on the roof of the law school the night before, and I was snapping it. And the guy said, you know, you really can't do that. I really need to take this. I said, okay, but you can't have my six-inch nail. And I pat my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Not a smart thing to say. So the doctor comes in um, and uh, uh, gets another security guy to come to take my nail away from me. And at that point, you know, I was done for. They lifted me up, you know, slammed me down on a bed and uh, uh, tied my uh, wrists and ankles to the bed and put a net over my torso. And when they slammed you on the bed, you saw stars. I saw stars, yeah. And I was also scared out of my wits. It would never occur to me that anyone would ever do anything like this. I mean, it seemed like a medieval kind of. So, and I was screaming and I was really out of of control, really scared and really upset. There was a woman looking in the, the little window at the whole thing happening. And I just felt really, you know, um... Degraded. Yeah. Humiliated. Right. It described
1: the noise that came out of you half-grown
0: uh half terror ha- half-grown uh, there's a line in the book that I yeah, I don't remember what it was but it was it was like half human half animal half human half animal ha- pure terror something yeah. like that yeah it's so yeah no I I've, I've definitely you know I had so many nightmares about restraints after that after about 10 hours your limbs like literally are killing you they hurt so much and you're so you know you're so helpless there's so little you can do it's so scary, um, and, and it's I not. Just, l- it's not like you had lunged at somebody with a knife, right? Right. Um, I lost what I was going to say.
1: Well, I, I, I want you to talk about the use of restraint. So, and where you believe it has a place, if any, how it's overused. I just
0: it, it, expound on use so, of
1: restraints.
0: Restraints when I wrote my law review note were said to be a treatment. They helped patients feel safe. They were a treatment. I've never heard I've never heard that. I've never that. heard a patient say that either.
1: We have a survey on our website, the uh, being hospitalized survey that hundreds of people have taken. Uh, and the uh I forget what the word is that I'm looking for. The consistency of of people's experience uh, uh, is they're just so consistent. It's people it's- tend to e- either have an experience where they believe that it saved their life. Oh, really? And they learn tools, or it they swore that they would never show their inner life again because right. they would wind up in this horrible circumstances right. where they were degraded and and they weren't seen, felt, or heard, which as you and I know, is the touchstone for right. recovery. Right. So I didn't realize there was a group of people that actually feels good about having been restrained? Not about being restrained, about having been hospitalized. I, yeah, that's but nobody has healed. ever said that they felt comforted by being restrained. Okay. It was. It's always a traumatic right. experience. right, right. right. According to the And
0: actually, so one thing is, does is it help people feel safe? And the answer is probably no. You're probably scared of your wits if people are doing this to you. The second is, well, maybe it keeps people safe, even if they don't feel it, that it pro- protect, protects people from injuring themselves. But my theory is uh, there's a, a series of articles in the Hartford Courant in the mid, probably the early 90s, uh, inquiring about restraint deaths um, and a Harvard statistician estimated, based on their data, that every week in this country, one to three to people die of restraints. They aspirate their vomit, they have heart attacks, they strangle. Um, so the question is, since we can protect people from themselves in other ways, like staff specialing them, or sitting in a padded cell with them, are we actually saving lives or costing lives by using restraints? And I don't think it's very clear. My, I have an institute called the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law Policy and Ethics, and we look at different issues every year, and our first year was on restraints. And um, a couple of people talked about their jurisdictions, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts underwent grave, great restraint reduction efforts, and it was extremely successful. They got rid of most of restraints. They did not increase risks of, of violence or, or damage, did not cost more. I mean, to me, if we can do that, we should do it. And I, I would love if my institute had more resources to, like, develop an intervention that can be shown to people across the country to help them reduce the use of restraints as well. So as somebody who has been restrained,
1: how would how could the staff have reacted ideally in a situation where somebody like you, who wasn't of imminent danger right. to somebody else, although some might say, you know, patting a nail right. in your pocket right. was certainly threatening. Right? Um, I, how should they have handled that, that situation ideally?
0: Well, uh, I mean, let me give an example. When I was at Oxford, I volunteered my last year there in the other psychiatric hospital, the one that I hadn't been in. And I was in the day unit, which is where patients came to do activities and things like that. And one day, one of the guys jumped another guy and started pounding hit him in the face. And staff and patients gathered around and pulled him off and brought him to another part of the ward and sat him down. And I was sitting with him, and 10 minutes later, a doctor came and said, you know, John, uh, you know, you just can't do that. That's just not on. You can't do that here. You, I, I have to forbid you for, from doing that in the future. And then he walked away, and that was the end of it. And that guy but, didn't do it again. He didn't do it again, and... It never would have happened that way in America. He would have been secluded or restrained or whatever. And you know, query is that a good thing? Yeah. Um,
1: so, do you feel like we've we've talked about restraint enough? Was was well, there the anything other. Else? I mean,
0: I would if if I were a restraint czar and and made the rules, I would. say... What would that hat look like? What would that hat look yeah. like? <laughs> it'd have a buckle. That's for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um. I would only use restraints when they're absolutely essential, and that would be if a doctor needs, or a nurse needs to speak to a patient at close quarters, or in transport, if, uh, you know, the person's threatening the driver or whatever. Mm -hmm. And other than that, we should use other methods to keep people safe. Um, if we don't do that, and we allow restraints for danger to self or others, um, I would have certain procedural protections in place, because the more you procedurally burden restraints, the less they'll be used. So I would say you have to let someone – you have to remove the restraints every 15 minutes and see how the person does. And at every half hour, you need to walk with them around the ward and stuff like that. And a doctor needs to see them. So make it hard to keep people on restraints. So it cuts against the factor that restraints are enormously convenient for staff. Because someone some of the restraints, they don't really have to think about them that much anymore. And,
1: and if you think about it emotionally as well, you know, I, in my mind, ideally what a hospitalization experience, if you're hoping to turn the ship around with this right. person, right. the foundation has right. got to be one of trust right. to build a template for right. relationships with other people. Right. You know, for most of us who have mental or emotional issues... Trust is very hard for us. And how could you possibly build right. trust after in, someone does that to you? After somebody does yeah, that to impossible.
0: you. It's impossible. It's
1: impossible. Yet I also understand the hospital's need to protect their staff. So right. It's, right. it's certainly it's, dicey. It's but a I, difficult issue. I am casting my ballot for you as uh, a restrained, restrained czar. No. <laughs> I just you. can't wait to see what uh, <laughs> your dress is going to look like. <laughs> um, What are her thoughts on recovering from schizophrenia
0: without medication? So, I think there are lots of really interesting and difficult issues around what is mental illness and how does it differ from eccentricity or just deviance. Um, I take the view that mental illness is a biochemical disorder that requires medication and therapy, for me, both medication and therapy, and that with those one can lead a good and a happy life. But I recognize that I do this not because I've done the heavy philosophical lifting, figure, figuring it all out, but for the pragmatic reason that it makes my life better. It works for me to believe this is an illness that needs medication and treatment and it makes my life better. If it's better for you to think you have an alternative way of being and you're happy and you're functional or happy enough, all the more power to you. So it's sort of a very individual thing. I think most people with psychotic disorders need medication. Although I have to say in my high-functioning Study um uh, a lot some of the people only use meds intermittently as needed, which really kind of stirs me up a little bit, but I'm trying to stay grounded in in what I you know the knowledge of these past what, ten years. What
1: about it stirs you up?
0: I'm just jealous, I would like to be able to
1: because you tried that, that for fifteen worry. years exactly yeah, yeah. Um, the combination of medication and therapy. Would it be fair to say that the therapy helps you um, cope with the stressors that bring about an
0: episode? Or Absolutely. Okay. Talk about the, the, the stressors. Um, well, let, maybe, the- let me talk first about how analysis might help. Sure. So the first deals with stress. Stress is bad for any illness, especially mental illness. And addiction. And addiction. And addiction. Yeah. yeah. So getting to know what your stressors are and either learning how to confront them or manage them or, or avoid them is really important second it fortifies an observing ego so that you can stand back and look what's in your mind and try to assess it and you know make sense of it third it's a safe place you can bring your violent and chaotic and scary thoughts and it acts like kind of like a steam valve releasing steam if you say it in the sessions you don't have to say it in your outside life which serves you well next is insight you know so sometimes a doctor can say say uh uh an interpretation that will make things better like i was saying violent things and my doctor said you know and i think you're saying violent things because you're really scared and that the violence is your defense against fear. And that really meant something to me. And then having a kind and smart and non-judgmental person who values you or accepts you not just for the good but also the bad and the ugly is enormously powerful and and empowering. And another way to think about this is uh, people these days talk about recovery uh, which I take to mean we're not just concerned with reduction and, and remission of symptoms but quality of life and it's for the consumer to say what that is and analysis can help you achieve the quality of life that you want and would you extend that to all of talk therapy or just psychoanalysis well i you know, I, I have done a little cognitive behavioral therapy it's not for me it works with a lot of people it's got a good evidence base um, but certainly and a lot of people don't shouldn't do psychoanalysis if they have a psychotic illness because they can't handle the pressures to regress and stuff like that, or can't maybe connect enough with the analyst. That's what Freud thought. I'm skeptical about that. so uh you do believe though that there
1: are other types of talk therapy that are beneficial oh, other than absolutely. supportive
0: psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, I think. Just yeah, depends on the person and the depends fit on the person. Yeah. And
1: the therapist, the chemistry, and the, of the match. Yeah. yeah. That's so important. You yeah. know, for me, the look on my therapist's face is as important as what they say the kindness in their eyes I the agree. the smile that right. you know shows that they're feeling what I'm sharing right. my my pain that was it was a real touchstone for for me beginning to not hate myself
0: yeah yeah
1: i feel the same way yeah how can people manage issues with mental health issues appearing on police records after things like suicide attempts? Boy, that's a great question. Wait, say, say it again. Yeah. How can people manage issues with mental health issues appearing on I guess how do you deal with with your suicide attempts being on police
0: records? How can you what can you do? Gosh, I have that. That's a good question. I have no idea. I didn't know you would get a police record if you were suicidal. I didn't either. Yeah. do you? I have no idea. Um,
1: You have stumped Ellen. That's a new game we're going to play. Stump Ellen. (laughs) Uh, Are there any misconceptions about schizophrenia that society has created from TV or movies? Yeah, you touched on that in your book, but uh, and a little bit here. But talk about that some more, if you would.
0: So, uh, we talked about the myth of violence and the myth of being unable to function. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The split personality. Yeah, that's you know a lot of people think schizophrenia means split personality, but like that's what Sybil. Right, right, right. In fact, uh, people with schizophrenia don't have a split mind; they have a kind of shattered mind. It's talk a completely about that. different category of diagnosis. One is called a dissociative disorder, and one is called a psychotic disorder. Uh, but they're confusing because of the names. You described uh, really eloquently in your book
1: what it feels like in your brain when you're having a- an episode, and you talked about the TV. Being sending ended. messages, yeah. um, no about the volume. Oh right, yeah, right, it, it, right. If you can, kind of uh, re,
0: re restate well,
1: I, that was. Basically, what you said was, um, imagine if you turned every appliance. Oh, sure,
0: sure. So that's that's all about the easy easy overstimulation that people with psychotic disorders have. So imagine yourself in a room and you turn the volume on the radio way up and you turn the the sound of the TV way up and you give some kids a bunch of ice cream and then you start scolding the kids and take the ice cream away and they start screaming. And all of this is happening at the same time and there's no way you can really focus on one, push the others aside... Mm -hmm. Maintain your sanity. Your mind starts splintering and, you know, shattering and getting confused and overwhelmed. It's such a and powerful image. Yeah, it's it's one of the worst things about schizophrenia: the the easy overstimulation.
1: And right now, there's a parent listening, going, "We call that Saturday." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd be interested to hear about the difference between schizophrenic mental chatter and the internal monologue how do these vary so what is the difference between uh oh ellen you're you know you need to go to the to the grocery store you don't have anything uh in the refrigerator boy you really kind of uh let your chores uh, or your you know your right. your to-do list go by the wayside today
0: you know. So, what's the difference between someone who has that critical thought about themselves and someone hearing a voice saying "you're bad"? And I imagine there's stuff that's in between. That there's stuff that's go, in
1: between. Give yeah. be me an example of something that's on the line between uh, psychotic
0: or just uh, a normal person kind of being critical of themselves.
1: Or is that hard to do?
0: It's sort of hard to do. I mean, and okay. I mean, people talk about you know, like depression and other illnesses being on a spectrum, not, not. Um, I forget the black words. or white. No, it's uh, dimensional versus categorical. So you're on a spectrum. You know, mm-hmm. the, the far side you have a little bit of mania, and the other side you're fully manic, and in the middle you're somewhere in the middle. Um, what were we talking about? Um, what's
1: internal monologue, and what's uh, your mental illness? Right. So I
0: guess yeah, there's a. Uh, So there's a continuum. There's a a continuum. And I I know what I was going to say. So people understand that with depression. Everybody's felt a little depressed sometimes, and people feel like they don't have much empathy or understanding of psychosis. But I I said, imagine yourself giving a lecture and looking in the audience and saying, boy, that person has a scowl. They they don't like what I'm saying. You know, that kind of thought, I think, is not that uncommon. Or you go to the butcher, and the guy turns the scale around, Facing him and not you, and you think, "I wonder if he's overcharging me." You know, so little things like that are kind of a little bit of a window into what it's like when you have a much more severe, you know, paranoid thought. Um, but I forgot what the yeah, h- original question. was. No, it was
1: the you know, what's the difference between your internal monologue right, right. and, uh, and something else? And in turn,
0: else? I don't. I've occasionally heard voices, and I've occasionally heard like it sounded like an ocean or whatever, or whisperings mm-hmm. or whatever. But I don't have frequent auditory hallucinations, which are very common. And the difference between that and just having thoughts going on in your head is that you're actually hearing stuff. You know, you like, turn your head, where is that coming from kind of thing.
1: I had that on a bad acid trip once. Oh my it God. was terrible. I it can was imagine. Ter- and I was trapped on a bus. Oh, I don't God. ever recommend being on a bus in high school with teachers while you're having a bad acid trip. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. It was awful. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, the thing about, uh, you know, the thing i like to say about people who think they understand depression because they've been situationally right. depressed is right. like thinking you understand italy because you've been to the olive garden
0: <laughs> <laughs> i love it that's great i'm gonna use that
1: uh, i'll credit you that's all good <laughs> yeah. Uh, how can I help someone with schizophrenia deal with his persistent delusions? He is so scared much of the time, and I'm not sure how to alleviate his anxiety. Well, you can't alleviate his anxiety, right. but you can be his friend, but I'll you let you, be I'll friend. let you pick the, pick this up from here and. Let's say it again. Uh, how can he be there for his friend? He wants to alleviate well, okay, yeah, his, yeah, friend's, yeah, yeah. his friend's anxiety who, has, who is having delusions. But uh, no. Well,
0: one thing, you can't really argue with person. You can't say, you know, that, that's crazy. How that's could you not believe happening. that? That's not really happening. For me, people being kind and supportive. Ellen, it sounds like you're having a hard time. You seem like you're really scared. You know, what can we do about that to help you feel better? Maybe let's call your doctor or whatever. Um, so them saying there is
1: nobody on the roof Right now, with with guns aimed at
0: us, that's they they shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say. How could you think that there's someone on? The I roof? say don't shame them. Don't but, shame them. But right. can you assure them? Yeah, that, I think that, you, that you can say these things. I know. You, I know you. These are really, really real. real to you, but I I don't think they're happening, and we can find out a way to help you feel that as well. So just kind of be supportive and kind. I mean, as you say, or as the the reader or the listener said. Um, Someone who's in a psychotic episode is terrified, and you know, the way you deal with that is you try to bring things down a notch, you know, be kind of calmer and supportive. And I mean, it's one thing that with the police, that you know, police need to be trained not to use a show of force, for example, with someone who's mentally ill, because that's just gonna scare them much worse and make them behave in a much less good way. Yeah, it's
1: like when you're trying to catch a dog, you don't run at it. Right, exactly. And what I'm trying to say is, people with mental illnesses are animals. That's what. <laughs> that's what. <laughs> um, has anyone who suffered from severe schizophrenia ever managed to lead a decent, functional life? Yeah. I, yeah. I think we've. She's I think I'm an table. example,
0: and I'm an example, and the people in my studies are examples. And yeah. Yeah. For
1: a long time, schizophrenia was a blanket diagnosis for mental illness. Has this changed?
0: Yeah. I mean, it used to be the case that almost everybody was diagnosed with schizophrenia. We're talking about like in the 60s. Um, And then people became much more sensitive to what severe bipolar disorder can look like and distinguish those. So back in in the 50s or 60s, you know, England versus America, we, we had, you know, I don't know, I'm making the number up, but 10 times the number of diagnoses of schizophrenia that they did. And they had a much more narrow view of what it is, and that's kind of the view today. It's a little bit more narrow. So I think 1% of the population has it. Um, Has uh, schizophrenia. Yeah. What do they share in common? Uh, People with schizophrenia usually have delusions um, and disorganized thinking. Um, As I said, some people have negative symptoms, some people don't. I mean, there are different and by negative, you mean the, the absence apathy, of some, yeah. something. Apathy, inability to work, inability to make friends, that kind of thing. And in a way, a lot of the burden of schizophrenia resides in the negative symptoms and not the positive symptoms, which can be helped more by medication.
1: And by positive symptoms, you mean uh, delusions. Hallucinations and delusions. That's, yeah. just how the,
0: that's the lingo they use.
1: Uh, and the other clarification you made in your book is that, that there's a difference between a mood disorder and a thought disorder. Right. Um, mood disorders being bipolar. Right. Um, what, what are some other mood disorders and what are some other thought
0: disorders? So mood disorders are depression, are bipolar, are the more minor kind of mood disorders like dysthymia and cyclothymia and stuff like that. Thought disorders include schizophrenia, delusional disorder, which is... A disorder where you have more realistic delusions, like the FBI is out to get me, and pretty high functioning otherwise, there are brief psychotic illnesses that last you know a short period of time. Um, so there's a, a range of thought or psychotic disorders and mood mood disorders. It's, it gets complicated because there's something in the middle called schizoaffective. Which involves both schizophrenia and mood symptoms, Mm -hmm. and there, you know, there's a complicated criterion about when the psychosis occurs relative to the to the mood and stuff like that.
1: I have a friend who's struggling with that right now, and he keeps uh, wanting to go off his Seroquel, and then he gets paranoid. Yeah, and uh, I know the drill. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, has anyone who suffered from? Oh, we read that one uh, for a long time. We well, read that one. I'm going to have to start checking these off. <laughs> What's the difference between schizophrenia and paranoid schizophrenia?
0: So people don't make those di- d- distinctions much anymore. But t- historically, there's paranoid schizophrenia, there's uh, catatonic schizophrenia, there's uh, hebephrenic or disorganized schizophrenia, and then there's um, uh, I forget what it's called, but it com- uh, combines a bunch of the different ones. Chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia, um, and they have slightly different pictures. So paranoid involves paranoid delusions, like people are trying to hurt me, or beings in the sky are sending rays to my head, or whatever. Is that more what you're, yeah. what you experience? Well, I, I do a combination of paranoid and disorganized, and so that, what that means is I have chronic undifferentiated because I have symptoms from both.
1: You don't have Root. the strength to commit to one. <laughs> I'll have to I work harder on that. I am so glad that you are a good audience, Ellen. <laughs> I was so afraid that I was going to make a joke. And, <laughs> and I would and, get upset and, or, or. Or that you wouldn't get it. Right. And because right. I, I, that happens quite a bit when I'm interviewing people. Sometimes, <laughs> you know,
0: they get so focused in on what they want to say. Right. That they, uh, kind of. I actually have people out. When I give my talks, I kind of sprinkle jokes, funny events yeah. in the talks. People come up to me afterwards psychiatrists and say, Do you you really have a great sense of humor? Do you retain your sense of humor when you're acutely psychotic? And I'm like, No, of <laughs> course not. I'm scared <laughs> out of my wits. <laughs> um, it's probably when you're not, ill, a good prognostic factor to be, you know, to be able to laugh. Oh. Uh,
1: it's yeah. life saving for me. That's one of the reasons I like support groups yeah, so yeah. much is being able to laugh about the dark shit yeah. is is hugely is hugely healing. I for totally me. agree. Um, how to separate the person from the brain? Who am I outside of my relative mental health or illness? It's kind of a broad question, but, uh, how, I think you talked about it a little earlier in our episode, being the watcher, as opposed to, I am my thoughts, right?
0: Talk about that. Say the sentence again,
1: uh, how to differentiate between, uh, the
0: person and the brain. So, you know, it's a really interesting question. Um, uh, The reason mental health is harder to accept even than certain physical disorders is because it seems to go to the heart of who you are. This is my personhood. This is who I am. And if you have a mental illness that says who you are is damaged, as opposed to a broken foot, you're totally a whole person. You have a broken Mm -hmm. foot. But if you have a mental health disorder... You're really damaged, um, and I forgot the question.
1: Yeah, you know, as you just said that, I was I was thinking it would be like if every time you showed a person on the news, all you showed was their their yeah. foot, and we yeah. talked about how somebody's toes and this and That's that. That's a great analogy. And then you yeah. break your foot one day, and yeah. it's permanent. You permanently have uh, you know one toe that sticks out the other way. Right. It's like right. yeah, how would you not be right. Right. like, oh my God, my foot's different. <laughs>
0: But I think, as I also said, that the the less I fought against my illness, the smaller a part of who I am it became. Talk about that. Um, You know, uh, Uh, how did you get to that place? I think that it happened through working through the narcissistic injury in therapy, and also getting on meds that really worked. You you think you it's possible you just had to have your teeth kicked in uh, figuratively enough possibly, time possibly possibly to go okay this is although they now say today that length of untreated psychosis correlates with greater brain damage down the line and I think if I knew that I might have tried to get off less often
1: that yeah, might have been less uh, yeah, uh, more scary than trying to, exactly. trying to uh, do what you were keep doing uh there's a, a book uh i l- always recommend to people if you want to try to gain that um distance between your thoughts and who you are there's a book by eckhart tolle called a new earth that is profound how do you spell the last name t-o-l-l-e and it is a profound book um for understanding the ego and negative mental chatter and okay. uh it it is hugely helpful and a great book to read for like two minutes every morning it's extremely dense, yeah. and uh, it's There's Take sometimes you like it. you read a sentence in it and you'll just have to go you know stare at a tree for like a half hour <laughs> one of those yeah, okay um, I've got three more questions and then okay. we'll, we'll turn you loose okay um, thank you for being so patient what are your views uh, as to the jail system providing mental
0: health help more and more well, I would imagine so it's you've a, got to, you know, what do you? It's a great question. Our third year at the Institute, we looked at, quote, criminalization of mental illness, which is people ending up in jails and prisons instead of hospitals and how we could reverse that. And the idea that the L.A. County Jail and Rikers Island and I think a Chicago jail are the three largest psychiatric facilities in the country is a scandal and a tragedy and it's not the way it should be. People blame the lawyers on letting people out of hospitals, but it was really the society and not providing resources in the communities. So as an example, when I left Oxford in the early 80s, a town of 125,000, there were 43 group homes for psychiatric patients. I moved to New Haven, Connecticut, same 125,000, one halfway house. How on earth are people gonna do well without without resources? Um one neat thing that happened as a result of my symposium is that the director of mental health, uh, Marv Southerd, listening to Judge Steve Leifman from Miami, who's at, instituted a jail diversion program, is now on board and trying to do that in L.A., and they're starting a court in Van Nuys. And it's going to be the kind of court where if you have a mental health disorder and opt in, you know, they're going to try to provide treatment for you and instead of a criminal record and jail time, which is definitely the way it should be. I mean, I know... I just don't think a jail is any place for a person with mental health disorder. So a friend, a student of mine did a documentary, it's a long story, but um, one of the guys said, you know, I I get from Skid Row, you know, I get put in jail and they say, stand in line. And then my voices say, go over there. So I go over there, they beat me up and they do an infraction against me. And that's going to happen with people who have mental health disorders who aren't being treated properly. And they're just going to, the evidence is they stay in much longer than other people with similar crimes do you see us moving in the right direction? I do. Not only Marv Southerd, but the county district attorney, Jackie Lacey, everybody's kind of on board with trying to do this. So it's not just your kind of liberal defense lawyers. You've even got your prosecutors who are saying, you know, Mm -hmm. we're not doing this right, we've got to do this better. And I think the time is right for that to happen, and it is happening, and it's great.
1: And at what point are we going to... Realize the damage we cause our country when the first budget cut is the mental health budget cut. It's a good question. It's a good question. I don't you know, know the answer. It's, you're going to pay for it one way or exactly one way or another. Exactly. Let's pay for it a way that does the least damage to people. Yeah. How do we bring the recovery model to a state-run system dominated by the medical model?
0: Well, it's sort of interesting because I think there's a lot of emphasis on recovery now, even in the kind of county system. Um, a lot of places you know, talk that language. I, I used to think it was just kind of window dressing and didn't really mean much, but now I think it's really pretty powerful. And I assume by, the,
1: by recovery model, this, mean, this person means teaching coping skills for somebody to get out and lead a life as yeah. opposed to you're just dependent on meds. Exactly. We're not going to try to nudge you to get back into society. Exactly. Exactly.
0: It's it sort of cuts both ways. It's both that you, you know, you can have a lot, and also you should recognize that there are, are limitations, or could be limitations, and uh,
1: responsibility yes. too. You know that one of the things I, I've learned, being a, a recovering uh, addict and alcoholic, is I I need to have compassion for. The sick person that I used to be before I knew there were tools, but now that I know there are tools, I have a responsibility to use them every day, not only for myself, but for those people around me that I failed. Um, How do we get the mentally ill out of prisons and off the streets? Are there any good ideas floating around? That's pretty broad, (laughs) but...
0: Um. I, I think uh, what you cha- were, yeah, but we've already said, you kind of liberalize the commitment standards, you try to get people treatment instead of criminal punishment and mm-hmm. all the other things that we talked about. Is there anything else that you would uh, like to to share with uh,
1: our listeners about uh, schizophrenia, uh,
0: mental health and the law? Um just if you if you have someone in your life who has a significant mental illness, you know, stay by them, don't run away, don't flee, don't let them push you away, um, and try to be supportive and kind and not critical and blaming um, and encourage people to, to get help. I mean, I think if you have a mental health disorder and you have a network of friends, family, treaters who are on your side, you just have a much greater likelihood of doing well than if you kind of just go solo and do the best you can. And I don't think you can ever
1: go wrong giving somebody who's suffering a hug.
0: I totally agree with that. Saying that you love them. I totally agree with that. You're sorry that they're struggling. Exactly. And there's hope. There are things that you can do. We'll do this together. You
1: know, it sounds corny, but it does, but it makes it. Love.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that.
1: Love is such a huge, huge underutilized uh, tool in so many circumstances, but especially in dealing with people who are struggling with uh, uh, something that we may have trouble wrapping our our heads around. Um, And the other thing I would suggest, too, is um, don't forget to take care of yourself because people that are struggling can burn your friendship out, and if you need to take a break, right. um, take that break. Just right. maybe say it in a loving way instead of saying, I'm sick of your bullshit. Be right? <laughs> like, I just need to go recharge my battery. I'm not abandoning right. you. I, I just right. need a little uh, a little me time. Right. Makes sense. Uh, if people want to contact
0: you or your institute, how, how could they do that? Should I just give you my email number? Uh, are you comfortable with that? Sure. Okay. E S, and Sam, AK SSN Sam, E Sachs, at law.usc.edu. I can't promise I'll get back right away, but I will get back eventually.
1: Ellen, I am just uh, so happy that
0: our, our paths crossed. I am as well, Paul. And thank, thank you. you for writing such a great book. Appreciate it. Thanks for the shows you do.
1: Many, many thanks to, uh, to Ellen. Um, I got so much. I know I say it all the time after I record with people, but I really do. I really, uh, I feel so lucky to, um, be able to, to do what I do, um, and get to, get to talk pe- to people about, so many interesting people about stuff that is so deep and so, um, important. And, and, uh, I learned so much about, uh, schizophrenia talking to her, um, all right, let's get to some surveys. This is from the shame. No, this is from the struggle in a sentence survey. And this was filled out by a guy who calls himself unreliable narrator. And um, about his depression, he writes, "It's like having a low-grade fever, a mildly sprained ankle, and a cold sore all at the same time. I don't feel bad enough to stay in bed all day, but Jesus, do I really want to? Boy, did I relate to that one." Um, about his sex addiction, I don't know if I'm going to the massage parlor to come to fall in love, or to hate myself more. Uh, About experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias, he writes, being an Asian male is like being invisible. I don't get to see people showering or break into a jewelry store unnoticed. Uh, Other people just don't see you. Uh, About being an abuser, he writes, I'm a self-identified feminist who patronizes Russian massage businesses which exploits their employees. Yes, I'm a real stand-up guy about his anger issues. Hey, you good-looking, preppy, white fuck. Yes, you with your stupid, chiseled face and your defined pecs. I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Uh, And then a snapshot from his life. He writes, running late, kissing goodbye, my beautiful, talented, and supported girlfriend of 15 years and my sweet, goofy dog, both of whom I love, and racing to catch the bus to my kickboxing class. And by kickboxing class, I mean the appointment I made with one of my regular sensual masseuses. Uh, I want to also read an awful moment that he shared uh, with us. He writes, When I was 16, I was writing a paper due for class the next day. As it was the late 80s, I was hunting and pecking on a uh, clunky electric typewriter, trying most anxiously not to make a mistake. As I was finally finishing up my hours of work, my dad let himself into the house. He was actually separated from my mother, which mournfully only lasted a year, uh, but he'd return daily to check the mail and be a dick. I can't remember what set him off. Maybe the bills were too high. Maybe the AC was on. For years, he only spoke to or touched us kids to reprimand us for all our perceived wrongs. Whatever it was, he walked over to me cursing and slapped me on the back of the head. Now this is something he's done almost daily for years. But this day, being completely full of this asshole's abuse, I snapped. I stood up and puffed out my chest, feeling rage and fighting back tears. He looked at me and said, you want to fight? And came at me it lasted only 20 seconds maybe but in the end i was exhausted and i'd given him a bloody nose which became a pretty embarrassing set of black eyes and he st- stormed off cursing the thing was there was blood all over the room from his blood his busted nose it was literally dripping from the blinds and my hair <laughs> that is such an image oh my god my sister walked in crying hysterically and i remember telling her it's all right it's his blood Well, I washed up and being a good Asian kid, I got a bucket of water and started cleaning. That's when I noticed. Despite all the blood, not one drop of it was on my paper. I'd love to end this by saying I got an A, but I got a C. (laughs) What a perfect ending. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And I hope, I hope you reach out for some help with the anger issues because, you know, anger, you guys know I've shared shit with you on this show. It is, it is such a debilitating emotion and that's why i drink green tea now i have no idea what that means this is uh from a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a um female who calls herself billy pilgrim um about her ADD. She writes, um, which I don't know if I really have, but my therapist just made some comments as an aside one day as if that was a given, so I'm not sure if what I'm describing is ADD or not. Trying to put on socks, which is the most boring task in the universe, and so reading a book to make it more interesting, and then getting so immersed in the book that an hour later I still don't have my socks on, am late, and when I do put them on, I put them both on the same foot. I don't know if that's an actual thing. Or if, or if she is uh, using that as an analogy, uh, about her anxiety, my legs jap- jackhammering so hard while sitting at a table or someone's house that valuables begin to rattle and someone in another room actually asks if we are having an earthquake. But in the meantime, I can't stop because if I do, all the adrenaline will make me curl up in a ball, run out of the room, or fight somebody, or possibly all three at the same time. Uh, about her PTSD, like being hijacked into many vacations into your past bodies, like a seriously fucked up being John Malkovich, but instead of that, at the glimpse of a father just jerking their kid by their arm, suddenly you find yourself stuck in your seven-year-old body, pulse racing, shaking, terrified, and crying. Sure, you are about to get your ass beat any second, even though your brain knows your dad has been dead for 20 years about being a sex crime victim she writes having dis- dissociated memories come back after 30 years unbidden is like having all these nasty relatives i didn't know had show i didn't know uh i had show up at my apartment uh one by one each pausing to whisper another filthy family secret in my ear except every story and picture is about my mother raping me from when i was a toddler until i hit puberty about her anger issues. My anger issue is that I haven't been able to get angry at any of my father beating me, my mother raping me, or all the other shit, and yet I still feel like it's my fault and that I'm the asshole for breaking off contact with my mom during these last few months while I deal with this shit. I have a ton of anger, but it is all directed at me to the point where I have punched myself so hard that I have given myself a concussion. And then I wanted to read, and I'm so sorry that you've experienced these such, so many issues and with such intensity. Um, and I want to read this, uh, snapshot from her life. She writes, I wake up, take antidepressants and anti-anxiety pills, spend a half hour to three hours convincing myself to get out of bed, then try to squeeze in time to pray and meditate. But if three hours, uh, but in three hours, but if three hours, scramble in lesson planning and grading. um Then try to squeeze in time to print it. I'm not sure what that means, but if three hours, scramble in lesson planning and grading. If a half hour, uh do the same because for some reason, maybe she meant to type in. Uh Do the same because for some reason, I'm obsessed with the need to do my job perfectly and feel horrible guilt for anything less. And so beat myself up all day for the time it took me to get out of bed, teach my college students all day, uh, where somehow I put on a happy face and come off as engaged and funny and can mostly keep my shit together, except all the anxiety lately has made my brain like Swiss cheese. So I have absent-minded professor moments where I have to stop and ask students where we were in the lecture or discussion, and sometimes I struggle to recall basic names and facts that I have known for 20 years, which makes me more depressed. Try not to see or speak to any colleagues because they may ask me how I'm doing or about my book, which I haven't touched because I'm too fucking depressed, anxious, and tired to do anything but teach. Take more anti-anxiety meds uh, when I feel like I'm going to claw out of my own chest and legs are jackhammering 30 miles a minute. Get scraps of grading done. Wish myself dead at least once every half hour, even when class is going great best plan is killing myself in my office because the janitor is not emotionally attached to me and so it wouldn't be that damaging of an experience for her to find me except my therapist made me give her all my rope so make note to go buy more rope and then I lose the note. Go home exhausted around 10 p.m. after last lecture. Pray, meditate, but not as long as I want to because I'm too fucking tired. Take more antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. Wake up in the middle of the night with a flashback. I don't remember, but know it was one because my pulse is racing. I'm yelling, sweating, and every part of me is tense and ready to fight. Repeat the next day. Sending you a hug. Sending you a hug. Hang in there. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself damaged, but it's chill. Uh, She writes, My younger brother and I have always been best friends, and most people actually ask us if we're twins. We have the same sense of humor, confide everything in each other, and can instantly tell if the other is upset about something. We also both have ADHD, depression, and anxiety. My freshman year of college, my brother's freshman year of high school, I fell in love with a spoiled boy who had a cornucopia of problems. About eight months into our relationship, he became deeply depressed and suicidal. He kept telling me how I was the only thing that made him happy. So as I watched him get sadder and sadder, I couldn't help but think that the progression was all my fault. By the way, I just want to interrupt myself. People telling you that you are the only thing that they have to live for is not a compliment. That is a means of them controlling you. And it is not love. It is the opposite of love. Run, set boundaries, distance yourself, do something. But do not, do not let those hooks get in you. And the, the other person may not realize that that's what they're doing, but um, they will take you down with them. Just my opinion. Again, I'm not a professional, but I am a jackass that tells dick jokes. Continuing. Um, I couldn't help but think, uh, his, him getting sadder and sadder, uh, was all my fault. I tried to reach out to his friends and family. And, and the reason I think that people then begin to think that the, uh, this other person is all their own fault is the purpose of those, them putting those hooks into you is for them to push off all of their problems on you. So then your mood becomes, their mood becomes your problem. Which is what she was then beginning to buy into. Um, stop interrupting, Paul. You know where you're really fucked up when you can't stop interrupting yourself. So as I watched him get sadder and sadder, I couldn't help but think that the progression was all my fault. I tried to reach out to his friends and family, but every time I did, he would lash out at me. He became very controlling. He wouldn't let me talk to his friends or see my friends and constantly accused me of cheating. I spent all weekend, every weekend with him. He went through my texts, my emails, and my Facebook messages and yelled at me for talking to boys who I was working with on a group project. If I ever started to cry, he would tell me how I was making him feel bad because he made me upset and wouldn't talk to me again until I apologized and consoled him. One night, I was on my way back to school on a ferry boat after visiting home when he called and told me that he was going to overdose on Oxy. I immediately tried to talk him down, but he hung up on me. I tried calling him, but he ignored me every time. Finally, in, his, in hysterics, I called his parents to warn them. Once the boat docked, I knew I wouldn't be able to drive, so I got on the next boat home. When I got home, I broke down and told my brother everything that had happened. He listened quietly, then after I was done, told me how just the week before, his suicidal girlfriend had taken a fistful of Vicodin while they were talking over Skype, and he had to convince her to call 911. We both started laughing because we just couldn't believe how equally fucked we are in this life. I don't think I've ever loved my brother more than I did in that moment. Thank you for sharing that you know it's it's like we we cannot control the pro- the problems that we have in our life, the amount of problems that we have, but we can control how we react to them and who's around us. I think it is so hot here in l a right now it is ninety outside and it's ten o'clock at night. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself done with this life. He is in his 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, he has never been sexually abused, but he has been physically and emotionally abused. His darkest thoughts, I fantasize about my life if my wife, just two years married, died suddenly. I would be alone, but I think I would be happier with no one uh, to be responsible, too, for my decisions. I know our conversations are just normal husband-wife things, but I feel like a child with a nanny constantly looking over my shoulder and judging. I'm almost completely miserable in this life and would rather be a hermit or dead. Maybe I'll just take out a big insurance policy, wait out the suicide clause, and off myself. I get to check out on my own terms, and the insurance payout could make a few people rich for not having to deal with me all these years. Everybody wins. Maybe I could even bring down some asshole with me, stick a knife in Donald Trump's heart, then attack the police protection until they take me down. Suicide by cop. Call it a life. Darkest secrets. I've been lucky here. Avoided life-ruining stupid decisions and people who would have hurt me. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've had zero interest in sex for about a year. Makes for a super happy wife and home, sarcasm intended. I'd rather read a book by myself than have sex with my wife or jerk off. I'm just not interested anymore. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my wife, please, just call a lawyer, have the papers drawn up, and I'll sign them. Let me let you out of this marriage with an emotionally dead, empty, soulless prick. What, if anything, do you wish for? A quick death or a Unabomber-style shack where no one will ever find me? Have you shared these things with others? With my therapist and with my wife, though not as explicitly or in full. It did not go well. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? No different than I, than before I started. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Uh, find the help you need early on before you get to where I am. buddy, I I, I hope your therapist can help you with some of this stuff. Um, You're so hard on yourself. And um, it sounds like your wife isn't... um, It doesn't sound like she's trying to see her part in things. I think for a relationship to work, I think both people have to be introspective. And um, I don't think any—I don't think any relationship can s- survive and be healthy if only one person is working on their shit. Anyway, uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Ginzu, and uh, he writes: A few years back, my mom's biological father died. He abandoned her early and never made any attempts to reconnect or meet me and my brother. Her brother said he wasn't going, but asked me if I go to the funeral with her for some kind of closure. So we hopped in our beat up van and headed to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, Dollywood. Our GPS led us to a beaten down building hidden in tall grass and weeds. My mom was saying, is this it? This can't be it. Oh shit, I think this is it. A shirtless man in overalls, one strap fashionably undone, glared at us from the property while he held a goat on a rope we started laughing so hard we had to sit outside and get it together get it together so we didn't walk in giggling the funeral service was bleak the pastor obviously had never met him and i think the mortician must have been the guy outside someone just gave him a mac makeup kit paid him with a fine goat and let him powder and rouge my 6'5 300-pound biological grandfather uh, up like a sassy saloon whore I looked in his guest book and there was only one comment. He touch his kids burn in hell. And touch was spelled T-U-T-C-H. His brothers, honest to God, dressed in jean shorts and cut off NASCAR wrestling shirts, hauled the coffin out. Later they lowered it into a grave and I heard people laughing and screaming something. A group of mentally handicapped people on a day out had found a graveyard cat and were tickling it. A woman I'd never met came up to me and showed me her purse with an iron-on picture of a young man. She said, You look just like my son. This is him, and gestured to her purse. Then she hugged me very, very tightly and whispered, He died in a fire five years ago. No, and refused to let me go. I felt awful for her. That is the most bizarre, awful-some moment I have ever read. That is just, that's more bizarre than funny. Uh, but I had to read it because that is just, that, that is like a David Lynch movie. Uh, maybe it was the David Lynch funeral home. This is the Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Casey without the Sunshine Band. She is uh, gay. She is in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She was, um, the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She's been physically and emotionally uh, abused. Um, Our darkest thoughts, I'm a liar. There is not a single thing about my life or me that I don't lie about and I don't think I feel badly about it. Darkest secrets, I'm a liar. Nothing about me is real. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't think I have any, to be truly honest. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my girlfriend, I'd tell her everything I've ever lied about because she's the only person I've ever truly loved and respected. But I won't because I'm afraid of losing her. And you know, the reason I wanted to read this is because I want to say you may be afraid of losing her, but you'll never, in my opinion, be able to truly connect to somebody if you're holding all those secrets. And so you're kind of, you're kind of fucked if if you're not gonna come clean with her and and be, um, I wouldn't say fuck, that's too strong of a word, but you're missing out, you're missing out. Uh, what if anything do you wish for to be a mom? Um, and I, if you are going to become a mom, I highly encourage you to go seek help for the pathological line because that is, that is no child deserves um, to grow up in a household it is filled with lies. It's just so toxic. I hope that doesn't come across as preachy, but I, I just felt compelled compelled to read that and um. Uh, oh, I forgot to read this. Have you shared these things with others? No, never. I'm a liar and I want to believe my lies. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? Not liberated. Almost as if I'm lying about lying, which I suspect Uh, is because I've done it for so long. I think it's like any other addiction or crutch. You know, it's, it served a purpose when we were trying to survive emotionally as kids, and then it stops working for us as adults. And you should listen to the episode with Mark Tyke, um, T E I C H, uh, who gets really honest about his, uh, ironically about his, uh, history of pathological lying. And um, you might find some comfort in that, uh, Casey. Sending you some love, though. Um, This is an awful moment filled out by a... uh, Well, I'm not going to read her name because it's going to tip the story. Um, We'll just say V.S.V. is is her name. And she writes... uh, on Friday night my roommate and I drove to the mall, it's an hour away, specifically because Victoria's Secret was having a sale on underwear, 7 for 27.50. It's a hell of a good deal because those panties normally cost 10 bucks each. I didn't want to spend money, but she insisted I needed a retail therapy because I had a particularly stressful and anxious filled week. Um While we were at the mall, I was still pretty upset about my problems, and after almost falling apart at dinner, trying to figure out what to eat, and nearly in tears about how stressful my week had been, my roommate suggested we get drunk, so I would, quote, get out of my head. We got home and took tequila shots, more like I took tequila shots. It was a House Hunters HGTV drinking game. We had to resort to taking half shots because it was like shot after shot. Around 10.30 p.m., I started to feel sick. She had way less to drink than I did because she wanted to make sure I wasn't going to get alcohol poisoning because I was so upset. She helped me upstairs. I put on my new pajama shirt, uh, tossing the rest of my Victoria's Secret purchase on the floor, and got into bed. I knew I was going to be sick, so I immediately got back up and thankfully made it to the trash can. After I had vomited all over the trash can, I looked down and realized I had accidentally thrown all of my new underwear into the trash can that was now filled with vomit. <laughs> there, is no, uh, there is no shortage of bodily fluids on the Awfulsome Moment surveys. And, uh, and some of you are grossed out by it. Uh, I apologize, but go fuck yourselves. This is another Awfulsome Moment, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Night Owl. She writes, When I was in high school, I was having some family issues. My mom divorced my dad, separated me from my brother and, and dad, uh, and moved me out to the country and then proceeded to leave me for days on end while she stayed at her boyfriend's home about two hours away. It was awesome because I could do anything I wanted, but I did tend to get lonely, scared, and didn't have a stable adult to go to when needed. Plus I have since come to find out my mom has bipolar and is borderline slash narcissistic, and so when she was around, it was awful. Anyways, I was going through a hard time. I didn't have anyone to talk to. So one day, while at school, I had a meltdown and couldn't stop crying. I was sent to my assigned school counselor who met me and I told her everything on my mind, sobbing and distraught. Somehow, the tables turned and my counselor started talking to me about her problems and how she is going through a divorce with her husband. Before I know it, she begins to break down and cry. And I am handing her tissues from the tissue box she gave me when I first came in. <sighs> Fantastic. And that woman should be hunted down and fired. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled up by a woman who calls herself Trying. And she is in her 40s, straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, one of them was being raped uh, while she was a soldier. Uh, She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Um, she writes, mother was both physically and emotionally abusive. She was too busy wanting to be married than to deal with a child, and she took it out on me. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Not anymore. My mother passed away. Darkest thoughts? Killing, I guess. I don't have the conscience for it. Darkest secrets I've only just begun I've only just began experiencing I like to be controlled during sex. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, I don't share my fantasy. Uh, bondage drunk out of my mind, uh drunk and out of control is what makes it great. What would you like to say to somebody that you haven't been able to? Nothing. Nobody really knows me. What, if anything, do you wish for? Death. I'm not a suicidal person, but if my day would end, I would invite it. Have you shared these things with others? Just a girl, soldier, a rock, divorce, but I'm still trying. How do you feel after writing these things down? Empty. I no longer carry any sympathy for myself. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Talk to people. Find a group, because it sucks handling it on your own. Um, and... And then she wrote, uh, and this really touched me, Uh, do you have any comments to make the podcast better? She writes, I've been listening for a while. This is the first time I've tried to write in, and that is only because of your last podcast. I could hear it in your voice how much you hurt. I hated that. And um, that probably wouldn't have have been, this would have been uh, about a month ago, two months ago um, that, that she's referring to that. But when I read that, I thought, oh, my God, I was thinking the same thing as I was reading your, your survey As you sound like you're just caught in a place between numb and in pain, and you just sound so isolated. And I think for a lot of us, we get in that place, and it's so hard to get out of it because when we, when we lose that momentum of opening up and connecting to people, you know it's like trying to go to the gym when you haven't been in, in 2 years it's the last thing you want to do and you just sound like you're in that that place and um i just um i really hope that you can reach out uh, to somebody for some help because you deserve it and what you've been through is terrible really terrible and uh if your experience was anything like the other um sexual abuse stories I've heard about in the military, uh, there is no support there and it's quite the opposite. It's um can exacerbate the pain that, that somebody is, is feeling. So anyway, sending you some sending you some love and your survey really moved me. This is a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Jax in the sad box. And she's straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was sexually abused and never reported it. She's been physically and emo- emotionally abused. Um, uh, a, much of it w- by her mother, uh, who was uh, just physically and very emotionally uh, abusive and manipulative. And this, I wanted to read this, this one excerpt because it just, I thought, it is a perfect example of how complex people are. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers, who, who was her mom, and she writes, I remember many Sundays when my mom and I would just lay around the couch and watch old musicals or movies together. We'd have coffee or tea and she would stroke my hair. Or when she would teach me how to cook and bake, I always thought that if I behaved good enough, we could feel that way together again, but that didn't happen that just that image of your mom, that being the same person that shamed you and beat you and humiliated you and do all did all these other things that um I mean, no wonder it's so hard to recover from from abuse with, with family members because we do have good memories of, of them sometimes. Sometimes there are even more good memories than bad memories, but the bad memories are so confusing or awful that it's we can't hold both of those truths at, at, at the same time. And um, I just thought... What you what you wrote was, um, it just moved me. It just moved me so much. Uh, darkest thoughts. Uh, I many times thought about my mother's death, maybe a random accident that would take her quickly. Sometimes I even thought about killing her in my dreams. I would always feel guilty, wishing death on her. But I truly felt that she, she that it was the only way I could ever break that tie and just feel peace for once. Darkest Secrets. I worked for a while as a phone sex operator. I enjoyed it for a while because I was never seen by anyone, but it gave me a sense of being wanted and desired, and for someone who feels completely ugly and repulsive, that was addicting. I stopped doing it when I came across some abusive guys in the chat rooms who got angry that they were paying to talk to me and threatened me over the phone and called me names. A few years ago, I had a relationship with an older guy. He was sort of a celebrity around town, and he was a high-ranking firefighter. He was 12 to 13 years older than I was. We would talk on the phone and it eventually led to a physical relationship. It was so surreal that the hot guy that was on TV uh, sometimes wanted me on some level, but when I told him I was falling in love with him, he said I was confused and that our relationship was strictly a friends with benefits thing and that I shouldn't put my emotions into the sex. Then I found out he wasn't separated from his wife after all and was still with her. I stopped responding to his messages and calls after that. I can't believe I was stu- so stupid to believe him and I felt used and disgusted with myself. I feel so ashamed at the things I did in the past to feel some form or what I thought was love from someone. You know, I don't know if I have ever heard of an instance of somebody having an affair and saying that they're in the process of getting a separation or a divorce and it's just a matter of time. And that person follow through on it I don 't know if I've ever heard that it is just, just a warning to anybody out there who's being told that um, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to I would tell my mom that she has to respect my boundaries and get out of my life forever uh, I want to shout at everyone who thinks she's such a good and amazing mother that no, she's not. She's a narcissist and manipulative and abusive and she will never understand the kind of unconditional love that some moms do give to their children. You are not a mom. You are a bitch and I will never let you control me again. And you know, the funny thing is, is telling somebody that they have to respect your boundaries almost never works. Giving them consequences for disrespecting your boundaries is the only thing that abusive people understand or clueless people understand. Um, have you shared these things with others? I have shared these feelings with very close friends after I spent time at the mental hospital after my suicide attempt. I'm so fortunate to have some friends who have been so supportive of me when they finally found out how I've been feeling and the truth of how I grew up. I also got support from distant family members after my suicide attempt. They said they always felt like something was off with the way my mom treated me and though I could or should be mad that no one did anything about it, I'm grateful for the support they gave me now. When I told them about how after I came back from the hospital from my suicide attempt, my mom told me I was a disappointment and ever since then has given me the silent treatment and cold shoulder again. Um, They always made sure to tell me that I'm on the right path and she's the one that's wrong in her treatment of me. I know this but it feels good that others see it now too. It makes me feel less alone. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like a little weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Hell, even now a few minutes ago my mom decided to come over to my house, slam my doors to come inside and yell at me over something stupid. After seeing everything that I wrote down, I feel more and more along the lines of fuck her, because though damaged I may be, I can be at peace knowing I never harmed anyone. I can look back at all of this and know I didn't deserve it, but I'm also not going to let it control me anymore. Good for you. Good for you. You can do it. You can do it. Hold on one second. This is an awful some moment. This is filled out by a gender fluid person who calls themselves LH and they write, when I was 18, uh, I upon many other occasions was driving under the influence. I was tipsy or drunk at the time. I'm 25 now and this was my first DUI. I had my best friend at the time and my passenger uh, and two other BFs in my back seat. There was a blizzard outside and we had just left a party. Instead of turning right to head home, I turned left and started up a mountain with music blasting. No one said anything. I ended up turning down a dead end. Going 35 to 40 miles per hour, I crashed head-on into a cement barricade. My two girlfriends ditched, uh, within, ditched with an ambulance while my other friend convinced me of running to avoid trouble with the law. Uh, After struggling downhill amongst giant rocks while a searchlight was tracing the hill, my friend got ahead of me and disappeared. I walked slash ran a long way until I got to a highway which I proceeded to cross until I recognized sirens and a flashing light catch a glimpse of me. I ran into the strip mall nearby only to expect my capture from the police. Since I had just escaped an almost fatal car accident, and was only wearing a thin jacket and had just completed a few mile distance on foot, the officer asked me if I wanted to go to the hospital or jail. I replied, hospital. They took me to the hospital to have x-rays and blood work done, and while I was there, one of the nurses was asking me questions and noticed something stuck in the back of my hair. I reached my hands to the back of my head and started tugging at an object stuck in it. I pulled to the light a yellow sucker that had been lodged in the back of my head, and realized my friend in the back seat had been sucking on a sucker upon the impact and had flew forward releasing this piece of candy into my hair when we had gotten into the accident. While sobbing about my present predicament, I couldn't help but start laughing also as the nurse looked at it curiously. It was a little moment of laughter as I was getting processed for a DUI, car totaled, and what I knew would be some time behind bars. (laughs) Thank you for that. Uh, And then finally, this is a happy moment from a woman who calls herself finally fucking free. And she writes, I just quit my job as a CPA to work at a bar. I gave up 75% of my income, my apartment, my car, and everything I own. I was so unhappy at the job, uh, at the job I was in. My life was closing in around me and I hated myself for participating in helping make rich people richer. I love music, theater, and art, and all these things were restricted at the office. I wasn't welcome to play music or dress how I chose. I had to cover my tattoos with band-aids. I had to change my hair, the way I spoke, everything about myself. So I quit. I walked away, canceled the lease on my downtown loft, got a cheap duplex, sold my car, and now I work 80 hours a week slinging drinks at a local concert venue. My life has never been better. I'm not even 30 yet. But I was going gray already. Now I wake up and look forward to going to work. I look forward to seeing my friends and bands and live music and this beautiful life. No amount of money is worth it. But if you're hiring on your show, totally call me because, dear God, I need a second job. Thank you guys all so much for your surveys, and thank you to Ellen Sachs for a, um, again, for a great interview. Well, thank you guys. Uh, that is our best of episode, and we will be back uh, next week because it's August with a brand new episode. I hope you enjoyed this best of, and uh, we'll see you next week. And never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody fucked up I know is weird way. bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.
0: Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.